I'm really excited to share this episode with you today. This was such a delight and surprise meeting Layla in our interview, in our discussion, and learning about her compound loss and learning about her trajectory and her progress sort of through thawing out her emotional side and becoming someone who's not only interested and curious about her emotions and how to take care of her emotions, but also how she funneled that into grief and loss work and business work. She's very cool. I could have talked to her all day. This discussion was just a a really good one. So here you go. Enjoy. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Gerdon Jarvis, your host, and I am here with Layla Taraf. I'm so excited. Let me tell you a little bit about Layla. She is the Chief People Officer at Allbirds, and that is that amazing modern sneaker that, you, that you've seen on Instagram. Layla is focused on guiding and strengthening the company's unique mission-based culture as it grows into a global, sustainable consumer brand. She is a trusted advisor. She coaches and advises the executive leadership teams. She focuses on team development, executive coaching, and building high-performance cultures. Her clients span multiple industries, including tech, consumer, retail, and financial services. And Layla's book, Strong Like Water, How I Found the Courage to Lead with Love in Business and in Life, came out in April 2021. It was published in 2019 by an indie publisher and came out again. She writes press and it has been called a brave and heartfelt memoir of love loss with surprising leadership insights. Layla, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Megan. I'm so happy to be here. This is such an exciting conversation for me. I do what I do when I when I'm going to meet a new guest. I go in and get a sense of who they are and who they are in the world. And you are like a chef and a baker and a, you, you cover all (laughs) the elements of the kitchen. And I am really excited to hear sort of where you are in the world, but I'd love it if you help our listeners just sort of understand where you come into the grief and loss space, because I know that you have earned your, your spot in this territory with the rest of us. Yes. Yes. So for me, when I was in my first year of my first real executive role, I was the chief people officer at Pete's Coffee and Tea, feeling very much like an imposter. (laughs) And my daughter was three years old. I was, you know, a relatively new mom. My husband uh, died suddenly of an accidental overdose. And that's a whole story. The fact that it was sudden that I was, you know, we were both hiding and complicit and that this was an issue. <clears throat> so that happened and, and obviously was, was a huge loss and had me reeling. And then my father, who had just had a stroke at 68, died 15 months after my husband. So just as I was starting to make my way, there was another big loss. And then my mom had a stroke and she died three years after my father. So throughout my entire tenure of my first real big leadership role at a public company, I was for the first time in my life really learning how to, not only how to grieve, but how to feel. I was someone who held myself as super strong and capable and no whining above all to myself. 
I always say that the universe gives you what you need to grow. And I think I needed, I needed the trifecta because I think one may not have done it, to be honest, that after three you know, big losses of, of the people closest to me, and it really hit home when my daughter one day, she was eight, I think eight or nine, there was a picture at my wedding with my mom and dad and my husband. And she goes, look, mom, you're the only one still alive of that picture. Oh my <laughs> like, God. Oh. My goodness. Oh, so that's that's how I earned my spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, and how long ago was that? My mom, it's it's coming up on her eight year anniversary, okay. it's June twenty fourth. My my oh. father was then two years before that. My husband was end of two thousand seven. So it's it's been a little while, but it doesn't it doesn't feel yeah. that long, especially for my mom. I don't know why that one of late has been really staying with me. Yeah. Well, I put something up on my Instagram page the other day that a lot of people sort of replied, commented to me on, which is like, you know, there's really no safe week in the calendar, right? Once you've had multiple losses and many of us have these things where it's like, you know, their birthday and Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then they're, you know, completely like these weird trifectas. My dad's um, birthday is June 5th and then there's Father's Day. Then there's the anniversary of his death. And then, you know, a month later, it's my mom. There's just these clusters. Yes. So I know that many of us, when we're talking about anniversaries, we're not just talking about an anniversary. We're talking about the minefield across the months of the calendar. Sometimes eight years means you don't feel it that much, but that hasn't been my experience. My experience is that maybe you don't know that if it's seven years or eight years, but you still feel it all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it is interesting because my husband died on my father's birthday and I got the call about my father on my daughter's birthday. And so there are these really weird coincidences. They double down and, and sometimes the occasions are really intermingled. You know, my daughter's birthday, very joyous. My father's death, obviously not. And how you hold space for both of those annually, those anniversaries, it has been really, has been really interesting. It's helped as time has gone on to have me be more integrated. But at the beginning, I felt really schizophrenic about it. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, that is like a compound loss that is hard to imagine. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why talking about these, writing about these, relating these stories is so important is that most people would say, I couldn't survive that. If I had a three-year-old daughter and that all happened and, you know, it's impossible to survive. And yet what we know statistically is that people tend to survive. Right. I mean, we, 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 yeah. we become, it's on the job training. We have to learn very fast and a little bit. My soapbox is, you know, I really believe it shouldn't be that way, that there's no reason why you can't have a cartographer show you the map of what grief looks like. You're still going to have to visit the country when you visit the country, but we just do a lot of avoiding of it. But I'm just curious, like, you know, what would have been a young mom with a young child without, you know, your husband and your parents and a big, very big job at, you know, a growing company? Like, how did you, what were the tools that you used or developed or how did you hide or evade? Those such great questions. 
you know, my tool of choice was distraction and deflection and avoidance. And so much so that I didn't understand how much I did it and how powerful it was. And I grew up in a family that used that as a way to stay away from what they didn't want to talk about or deal with. So again, this is in hindsight now, looking back, I was so numb, so, so numb to what was coming up inside me. I just had it tamped down so tightly that it was, it was one big, huge blind spot for me. So the real learning for me over the last dozen years continues to be how much I was on lockdown, how much I did not allow myself to feel. And, you know, part of that was what helped me get through it in the beginning, because I was numb to so much of it. I have a friend who lost her husband six months after I lost mine, she talked about it incessantly, incessantly, incessantly for 10 years. I'm like, what is she doing? And she, but she just had a lot more access to how she's feeling. And I didn't. And for me, it was very much a slow thaw. Yeah. And writing my book continued to be part of that journey because I learned so much about myself, what I allowed myself to feel, how I took things in, especially when I worked with my writing coach and I'd write out a scene and she'd say, oh, wait, what do you mean you felt this way or that way? I said, well, it's right there. She said, Layla, you just went A, B, G. You skipped like six points. <laughs> and so I realized, wow, okay, that's a moment. I need to unpack some things. Why, why did I see it that way? Why did I not feel this way or that way? And I just realized that Uh, My gift and my biggest uh, learning has been to to allow myself to reconnect with my feelings and to feel 40 years of unprocessed feelings. And I think subconsciously I knew that because I resisted it so much, so hard, because the second anything came up, push it right back down again. I didn't understand what the point of it was. Maybe if I had a therapist like you that said, the only way that you work through your feelings, that you process them is by feeling them. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that. I didn't see the point in being upset or crying. I didn't like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. Explain it to me. But I think what you're describing is probably at the core of a lot of change, which is you're forced into it. You don't see like the intellectual intelligence of why someone should cry. It's just not feeling your feelings is not possible anymore is sort of how this works. I think about from a writer's perspective, the woman, Carolyn Murnick, who was on my podcast, who's my editor, was is always having me talk about kind of the hero's journey. And one of the one of the nuggets of the hero's journey is that they try not to change for a little while. They try to keep doing what they were doing before, even though it's broken and not feeling your feelings worked for as long as it worked and then work anymore. And I'm curious about this because one of the things that I know from the neuroscience around how we experience the world, like we cluster our knowledge around past experiences I remember when I was in college, I was in London and I tasted lemongrass for the very first time. And I remember it because I had never tasted a flavor, anything like that before. 
And so it was like updating the data of my palate, which was like, oh, now I know this flavor. And actually I always notice it still because it was such an acutely different experience. When we are understanding the world that we're in in the present moment, we are doing that with the knowledge of our past. I know that this, what this iced coffee is gonna taste like because I've had iced coffee before. And part of the reason that grief is so overwhelming is we haven't done it before. We haven't done this primary attachment, this kind of loss before. However, we have had losses before. So I'm curious as someone who tamped it all down for a really long time, did you discover that when you were starting to get in the feelings The neuroscience behind this is, is that we actually cluster experiences on these little branches in our brain. And so if we go in and we talk about, let's say your husband's death, you may actually discover that you're having feelings about your cousin who died when you were seven, because they're clustered in the same place. I had a boss who died suddenly of cancer. And the morning of his funeral, I couldn't stop crying about my grandfather who had died like 17 years before. I just couldn't stop talking about him and thinking about him. And a lot of that death was unprocessed. So I'm just curious, what was your experience once you brought those feelings up? Was it sort of one-to-one ratio? Was it kind of all over the place? It's a great question. I, I think I'm still discovering that. I do find that when things happen now, they touch me in very different ways. And now I don't try to understand them intellectually anymore. I've learned that much. I'm trying to remember the clusters, to be honest, the George Floyd murder and, and whole jury trial was really hard for me. And I'm, and I still don't understand why to the point where I just couldn't hold back my emotions and my tears. The, the, the uh, day that they convicted Joven, I just, I was a mess all day long. I, and I, and I still don't know why. And that was just yeah. a few months ago. It just touched me so deeply. so deeply. And so there must be a tie there that I still don't know. I do find I have sort of made sense a little bit. My father had a brother, a younger brother who died at 20 under very mysterious circumstances. And I've tried for so long to find out a little bit about what happened. I was, I believe, three when he passed. So I have a dim, dim recollection of him. It's probably just through photos. Yeah. But more and more in my life, I tie the death of my husband to the death of my uncle in in a very visceral way that I can't put into words. Yeah. But it's just odd that. I, you know, people say you marry your father. I think I married my uncle. Yeah. I think I married this beautiful, fragile, broken man who wasn't going to live a full life. And I think that was my uncle. He grew up in a very tough home as as did my father, as did my husband and just couldn't, you know, didn't have the wherewithal to survive. And again, no one's told me this. This isn't a story. Everyone's again on lockdown. No one's going to talk about it. I just know it to be true viscerally in my body. You you were three when your uncle died and you had a three-year-old when your husband died. That's so interesting. It's such a a tie. Right? Isn't that weird? It's just It's weird. You're a therapist. You understand trauma a lot better than, than I do, but I do believe, and I have read a lot about how trauma is passed down 
yeah. through, you know, generationally and cellularly. And because my family never spoke of these things, it's only a felt sense of it. Uh, but I know that a lot of that trauma has, has, has filtered its way down. I, I mean, if you want me to tell you a really weird story, my cousin, he's, he's German, he's half Lebanese, half German, I'm Lebanese. He had a situation where he did this thing, this called integrated family systems. Uh-huh. And it, it's an, it's energy work. And he was struggling with some things. And in that, in that treatment, he found out that the therapist said, well, you know, you're having to claim this fourth child because of the lost fourth child in your family. And my cousin said, I don't have a fourth child and we're only three children. And this therapist said, well, I, yeah, I don't know. There's energy around the fourth being. My cousin, he was in his forties, went back to his mother. He said, but was there a fourth child? And there was a fourth child he never knew about. Oh my so God. just weird, right? That is that how it just kind of, yeah. So I, I, I can't explain it, but there's a lot, I think, in this world energetically and emotionally that there's such wisdom in it. If we just yeah. pause and allow ourselves to pay attention, it's happened. My listeners know this, but you know, I, I have an academic background that, and I read all the books and really believe in science. And the way that I knew that my mother died was I was sitting in my minivan and I felt the sensation of water breaking in my abdomen and called my husband. I know that's how I knew I looked down and was like, I'm not pregnant though. And I looked down and there was nothing wet. And I called my husband and was like, I think she's dead. And he was at the house where she was and she was dead. And 10 days before my husband had, my husband's English, he had our kids in England and I was actually on a trip with my mom. She had an illness. We're not sure what she died of, but she had a, maybe some internal bleeding, maybe something going on that was undetectable. But my youngest son, who was seven at the time, wasn't sleeping. And so my husband was like, can you just talk to him? So I get on the phone and he's like, you know, I just am really afraid that someone I love is going to die. I mean, he said it for wow. t- every night for 10 nights, he couldn't sleep because he was afraid someone was going to die. Then he was with me in the minivan when my mom had died. And that night we were going to bed. I mean, he wasn't trying to be a jerk, but he was like, I feel better. I think it was just that Nana was going to die. So even though, <laughs> oh my gosh, even though I hate, I hate those stories because they make me feel very out of control. I absolutely know that they're true. And I know enough of the neuroscience around how our right brain works, which is all this intuitive creativity, instinctive, spiritual part of us. And what I've always sort of said is like, you know, my youngest son and I would probably have been burned as witches back in the day. (laughs) But when people are talking about intuition and gut and all of that, you know, I do think there's a pathway into grief around that because I think grief is this mother load of energy that is the reactionary force that happens because there is a lack of energy, right? A person was alive in your life with energy and cells and all of that. And, you know, breath becomes air, they, they die and their energy goes back out into the world. And then you are left holding this reactive state that then you have to sort of figure out how to move it through. And 
you know, all of us do that in different ways. And many of us don't understand that that's actually what grieving is. I said this to you off mic a minute ago, but many people are really focused on how much they cried or didn't cry or how much time they took off or how quickly they were able to get back to work without understanding that it's about the energy that you're carrying and how heavy that load is for you and how skilled and sort of a grief athlete you become in terms of carrying that energy. And certainly my experience with my mom was it was too much. It, I couldn't carry it. It was too much. And I had to learn. I had to get a lot of help really fast. And one of the things that I think is important and I say to I say to my clients, I say to the podcast, I say to everybody, that wasn't because my mom and I were so deeply close that my mom and I were not best friends. We were not. I loved her deeply in my twenties and thirties. I was not an easy person for her to, you know, parent. She was much closer to my sisters. It was much more about what the energy felt like. How equipped was I to have this kind of a loss? And I was really a participant in my dad's loss. So I really was still kind of coming off that energy. So, so how, like, did you throw yourself into work? Did you start running? Did you go to a grief group? How how did you do it? I, I did it slowly after my husband died. He died, as I said, the beginning of December, we didn't know until almost a week later. And I experienced the same thing you did where something was wrong. I was feeling like things were off. I kept on calling people. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. And then finally I called the police and, and, and they found him. I knew, I knew the whole time. And I was trying to convince myself. I didn't know for a few days. It was, you know, I I say in my, I say in my book, it was like a street fight and my heart finally, my heart and my body finally summoned enough energy to just topple my intellect, which was like, no, no, everything's fine. It's all good. And because it happened right before Christmas, we had a a small service before Christmas and then a celebration of life on January 4th on a Saturday. And I went back to work on Monday and people looked at me like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what? You know, it's all wrapped up, you know, in a bow. I, again, this is how crazy, like, I'm like, well, what? You know, yes, we, we, we honored him. We, we celebrated. I've had two services. I produced this whole event. I threw myself into the administration yeah. of death. Yeah. It was, it was a curated event. And so that kept me very busy and away from my emotions in the beginning. And then I went back to work and I wish I would have known people's, what people were thinking, but people just sort of looked at me like, okay. And for six months, I went to work and every day I would just, I would lose a little more air. I felt like a balloon that was losing its helium. And six months later, I walked into my boss's office, the CEO, and I said, um, I think I need to take a break. He looked at me, he said, well, he goes, that took a lot longer than I was expecting. He goes, it's about time, Layla, we've all been waiting for you to come in and say time out. And I was, again, so clueless. I was like, oh, okay. And so I took six weeks off after six months. And even those first two weeks, I busied myself again, right? I, I, I was cleaning the house. I was organizing. I was downloading CDs. And, and I stopped and I thought, what am I doing? And that's when I started to do this really beautiful type of yoga that's heart opening. It's called Anusara. Yeah. 
And I had done yoga in the past, but not like this. And something really amazing started happening in those sessions where I would just tap into something. I'd be laying there in Shavasana and I would just start bawling. And at first I was a little embarrassed and trying to hide it. I, and, I, and then it just overtook me. I couldn't. And, you know, what is wonderful about the yoga communities are like, yep, keep yeah. it coming. We they don't even bother you. Here. Passion yeah. tissues. They're like, yes, exactly. Even exactly. Which, which also was such a, a moment for me. I was like, wait, these are people who can hold space for this. I went to business school. And while I love my business school friends, even today, they are probably the least interested in my journey, in my book that's come out where I really tell my story and I'm being incredibly vulnerable. One of them said to me the other day, which I so appreciated, she said, I want you to know that, you know, my way of dealing with things is not dealing with them. And I just want you to know, I'm really proud of what you've done, but I just can't go there. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was going to be the closest <laughs> that we got to yeah. any sort of acknowledgement. And that was fine because I recognize we're all on our journey. And that was me 20 years ago. Yeah. And so for me, it was that, it was that break about six weeks, I started going to yoga and then I joined a certification to get my coaching. Oh, and wow. that was a year long program of a very deep, yeah. and it's called integral coaching. So it really holds this view that we are uh, all meant to be integrated human beings. And the process for us is to bring back all these fragmented, detached feeling pieces of ourselves that we broke off from that were too painful, as you know, as a therapist to deal with. Yeah. And so the process was very much to get in touch with what we call the six streams of consciousness, cognitive, feeling, somatic, relational, and really go deep on how capable were we in all those places. My, my coach used to say, you have to develop the body of a coach, which means that you're able to hold the capacity to be with suffering, your own and that of another. And so for me, if I was going to be a coach, I had to develop the ability to stay with all these feelings that were coming up. And I think that was how I made my way through, but it was a long, long haul. There's so much of what you're describing, which is just ringing some bells for me. One is that concept of traumatic growth, which I think is what everybody's aiming for, right? Which is the idea that the trauma happens, but my life doesn't end, that I continue to grow. I have chills when I'm thinking about it right now. Like what I find to be the most hopeful is the instinctive ways that we look to grow that trauma, right? Like you're in the business world. You're suddenly overwhelmed with the need to figure out how to feel your feelings. Your system goes right towards coaching, that it is drawn to this perfect blend of what you already know and what you need to know. It's that's, just so, so that's such a great way of, of looking at it. It's so true. That was, that was my path. That was my way through. And I didn't expect this in writing this book, but what is continuing in my, in, in my learning and in my understanding, everyone now talks about how vulnerability and authenticity is the way to be. And, and it's actually a strength and not a weakness. And I believe that intellectually, 
but the experiences I'm having now when I have someone who knows me or doesn't know me and says, oh, I read your book. I still have this feeling inside of me like, oh, are you going to judge me? Are you going to think I'm I'm weak? And every time we drop into a conversation that is deeper, richer, more meaningful, more authentic, and it is, I'm experientially learning this lesson that I think I've known for, you know, 10 years that vulnerability is strength. I think it's taking those experiences and internalizing them that's really helping me to change and grow. I had this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. You did? And what he said to me was, if you are choosing to be vulnerable, are you really vulnerable? And I just loved that. Wow. Right? Because if if you're choosing it, if you're saying I'm going to be vulnerable here, is that the same as what you described, which is like, oh shit, I am vulnerable here. You know more about me. You read my book. You could reject me. So I just loved it. Like I I think the concept, right? Brene Brown has exploded this world for us, but I think I, I actually do this crossover podcast with a woman whose name is Brooke James. She's the grief coach. And we talk about dating after loss. And we talk about forming new relationships and attachments and how there's this core vulnerability because you've lost already so much. And the idea that you're going to then take the risk to attach again is it's like a woman who's had a miscarriage, like trying to get pregnant again is fraught. It just is. You can't, you can't undo the vulnerability that you have. And so this concept of, are you really vulnerable if you're picking it rather than it's happening is one that's been banging around in my mind. And what I think about with grief is, you know, you can have had a loss before and learn to carry that loss. And, And your sister could have experienced the same loss, but your sister lost her thing. You lost your thing. And every time we have to grieve and process through with the best information that we have about what we need in that moment, which means if my last loss was when I was 18, I'm not 18 anymore. Some of what I did then running marathons might work, but it might not. And also maybe it feels different to lose someone at 18 than it does when you're in your forties. Maybe it feels less vulnerable at 18 or more vulnerable at 18 than when you're a mom with a three-year-old. And, and so those are the, the concepts of you can't really know till you know right? what kind of vulnerability you're going to be experiencing. You know, I got to participate in my dad's death because he had cancer. So I was vulnerable to losing him, but it was not traumatic in the same way that my mom's mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't wake Shocking. up. Exactly. Yes. And in trauma, what we talk about is the central nervous system being overwhelmed. So the first thing that we're dealing with is like, oh my God, my brain doesn't work. You know, the number of stories of things that people have told me that they thought and have a lot of shame about, like, you know, my first thought was, oh my God, who's going to pay for college instead of, you know, oh my God, my dad is dead. So a lot of what I do is teach people, like, let me just teach you what's happening to your brain in those moments, how the, how the circuitry is not working effectively. And then we look at the trajectory. And my guess when you're talking about yours is that your left brain was like, I'm going to take over the show. I'm going to think I'm going to do all that stuff. And as you got further away from your tragedy, that brain was like, I need to sit down. 
Who else? I'm tired. Who's ready to drive this bus? I can't, you know, I'm I'm too many overtime hours. And so as a therapist, part of what I'm doing is saying, tell me instinctively what you know. And so I love that you went to coaching because it just seems like the wisest element of you going for what you needed, bringing what you already had. But many people have no idea what to do. They have no clue. Uh, They cried, they slept. Going back to work makes the most sense. And for me, I really wanted to go back to work after my dad died. I didn't talk to my clients about it. I just wanted to get back into the office. I took six months after my mom died because I couldn't imagine anyone telling me anything about how they were doing that I wasn't going to resent them for. Why would I listen to how other people were feeling when I was so overwhelmed with my own? Yes. I just, I love how you're, you are putting words to what I have felt, which is when you don't know what to do or where to go, I've learned now to pay attention to what is energizing me or what lights me up inside and where I kind of push away. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't want that. Even if I don't understand it. And I've, I've been in this dance now for the last dozen years between willing things and striving and then paying attention to what wants to happen and allowing. And when that first concept, when I first started play around with that concept, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Why I just sit here and let things happen to me. Like I didn't get it. I just thought if you're not making things happen, then you're just, you know, it's inertia. You're just allowing things or things are happening to you, but that's actually not true. You are participating and co-creating you just have to pay attention to what's happening around you and that means sort of quieting your mind and and not jumping in when there's still more information to be had uh and it's interesting because I missed my husband's death completely right and my my father called on my daughter's fifth birthday sorry the, the hospital called he couldn't talk he was intubated at the time and they said, he's asking for his family. He was in Las Vegas. I was in San Francisco. I, I had just lost my husband. It's my daughter's fifth birthday. I said, I'll be there first thing tomorrow morning. And I woke up with this just at five o'clock. And then my phone rang and my mom told me he had passed. And so when my mom got sick, I was like, this is not going to happen to me again. And I had built the ability to stay with my feelings and to be able to grieve. and. I was on a camping trip and I just had this feeling every day, like your son, I would ride my bike to the closest uh, uh, place where there was a phone and I would call and her caregiver would be like, no, everything's fine. I'm like, okay, every day. And then one day she goes, it's not fine. And I knew. And so I was able to make it there and be with her in that moment, like you were with your father. And so I think to me, that was full circle in so many ways, right? To be able to usher your parent out of this world, you know, the the one that that brought you into this world. And also it was such, um, it was a moment for me to realize I could do it because I doubted my ability to be this more sensitive, vulnerable person. And I still fight it. I still have the instinct to fight it. I love what your friend said. If you choose to be vulnerable, are you really? 
I, I wonder if it's like degrees, like trauma <laughs> is in degrees. So you're, you know, <laughs> first degree vulnerability. It's like, all right, I'll show you a little more of myself. I don't want to, but you know, wh whatever the fifth degree is, you just, you have no control. It just, it just kind of comes out. Yeah. I mean, what you just said made me think of a number of different things. First of all, just sort of honoring the, the different ways of your profound loss, right? You lost your husband in one way. You lost your father in another way. You lost your mother in another way. And I just think that again, when we're talking about grief and loss, that has to be honored, which is, we're not talking about one thing. We're just you know, we're talking about an energetic thing that needs to be talked about. You and I are vibing on this sort of mystical, intuitive energy that's sort of sending signals for many people that is not going to land. They're going to be like, I don't know what those two ladies were talking about, but, <laughs> but all of it is important to sort of reflect on because the, the concept of how do we allow our entire population, more access, more oxygen into feeling like this is something I can do. I appreciate, and I'm not here to vilify your friend who said, you know me, I do this differently from business school. And I know a lot about the brains that go to business school versus the brains that go to yoga teaching. The thing is, you can go to yoga teaching and become a, a yoga teacher and never need a business school degree but you will likely need some of the energy of yoga as a business school person. And so, so true, right. And so to me, we're screwing up when we are allowing, you know, people to feel like they're reinventing the wheel. They're the first grievers that ever was they're going to work, but they are just leaving for lunch for one quick hour to go process their partner's death. And then they'll be back for the meeting at one 30 that sort of polishing up of all of it is yeah. just not telling the truth. And I had this fascinating conversation with this palliative care specialist whose name is Catherine Mannix. She's, she's from the UK. And what she said is, you know, we didn't just do this. It used to be that mothers lost children in childbirth in the home in front of their other children. We think of that as traumatizing, but actually it was inoculating. It was helping children have exposure to some degree to death and that there were people who were nursing their husbands, you know, they died in their homes and that there were losses that people felt and saw Part of it is medicine. You know, people live to be 99 years old and they still die in a hospital. So I really appreciated that conversation because it was a reminder that we haven't been doing grief like this for very long, right? Like you described your husband died of an overdose. Even that is a relatively new phenomenon that is much worse than it was 10 years ago. We have an entire population of people millions of people who we're going to see what is going to happen, but they're navigating COVID loss. This is going to be yeah. that thing, right? I, I feel just compelled to talk about it right now is I've said this so many times, but you know, my daughter was 10 years old taking a class on puberty because what we know is it's super traumatizing to have your body go through all kinds of bad things when you don't know what's going on but we don't require a class actually in counseling. We don't require a class on grief. I went all the way through social work school and was not wow. required to take a class. Surprising. And I would argue that 
even therapists that I know are not well grief informed. I always get a phone call from colleagues saying, hey, this thing happened to this member in my community. What should I say? What should I do? And I'm very careful to say, what is your instinct? What do you think you should say? You know, I have a list of little phrases. Pick the one that calls to you. Yes. Pick the thing that makes sense to you. Because that presumes that they're in touch with their instinct, right? That's that's part, you know, someone would have said that to me in the beginning. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to take pen to paper and make something happen. And maybe I just feel that because um, my orientation was sort of, you know, intellectual first, right? And, and I I think others are not like that. Others are, are very in touch with their feelings. And that's what makes grief, I think, to your point, so individual, how we make our way through kind of depends on what our set state is yeah. and, and what abilities we have based on that and how we've held ourselves to that point. For me, I felt like I was all head and I had to get in touch with my heart and really reconnect with my somatic intelligence. Like, what's my body telling me? Like, am I having a pain, uh, you know, tightness in my chest or do I have butterflies in my stomach? where before I would just override that. And it's like, wait, what's happening? You'd appreciate this, this one mood coaching session in my coaching school where my, my teacher brought in a somatic therapist. Yeah. And she, and we did this session. Oh, that's what you are too. Yeah. Okay. And I am what your brother got. So yeah. Okay. And, And we paired up as, you know, coach trainees and we did this mock coaching. And then afterwards, the therapist said, you know, tell me what you were feeling when the other person person was was telling you what was going on everyone raised people were raising their hands and they were saying oh well when joe said he was scared i felt the hair on the back of my neck go up or when susie said she was sad i felt a real tightness in my chest and i'm like are these people crazy like what i felt nothing and i i raised my hand this is one of these big sort of moments of just watershed moments for me i raised my hand i said to my instructor i said yeah, you know what? I think I'm such a head person that I just don't feel any of that. So that's that's just not going to work for me. It's so dismissive, so cavalier. And he looked at me and just very casually said, I very much disagree. I actually think you're very much a heart person and your head comes to the rescue of your heart. Megan, I was like, what? It was like somebody hit me over the head with a hammer because this reorienting of what my story had been, which is I'm all head and I've got this puny little heart and it, it, it doesn't have any ability to stand up. He turned it on its, on its side and said, no, actually, you have a big, beautiful, sensitive heart that can't take all this. So your head protects it rather than inhibits it. It rocked my world. It just, yeah. it just broke my entire narrative open. It's so interesting because across grief models, across the trauma theory models, there are elements that are sort of similar to what you're describing. And what I love about it is that it's offering integration instead of a war between myself, my my puny and my, and the image that I use, which is not really, I've sort of added it to my concept of some of these therapies is that we have a bus full of bus drivers and we have a place that we normally go. 
and we know that route and we normally have, you know, I'm a happy all the time, probably overly intellectual people pleaser. Those are my bus drivers. They work well a lot (laughs) of the time, but in a big crisis, like profound loss, one of the bus drivers that I had all the time was anger. I mean, just all the time I was angry at everyone and everything and my kids and my dog, the idea that other people needed me. And what I know, partly from my training, but much more from my experience is that anger is standing there with her double guns, protecting you. Yes. The thing behind. And so now when I get really like white rageful, I'm not even interested in my head. I'm like, I see you sister. I get why you're here. Can you just step to the left so I can see what's behind? Am I afraid? Am I grieving? What is it? I love that. Yeah. It's beautiful. What it really offers, you know, what one tool that many people use is addiction, right? Like the addict part is the dissociative part. It comes in and, you know, you are a high hustler. You're going to get stuff done because it needs to get done. Some people, they just need to check right out. And so what happens sometimes in AA and, and in treatment groups is they say that is who you are. And I get that. I understand that that's why we say I am an addict. But I really like to say to people, you're, you have a very strong protector that is Mm -hmm. an addict. That is the one who wants to drive the bus. And it allows this, like just a little bit of hope and possibility around like who else would drive the bus if the addict wasn't, who else could we invite? And part of what I was thinking when you were talking a moment ago is that there's this place that we need to get in life to live it, which involves being creative and curious. Yes. And when your brain is jacked up, when your amygdala, when your limbic state is ringing like a gong, creativity is not online. And so that high hustle that you have, and I also have, and I came home, I came out of treatment after my mom died and I read 88 books about grief and loss. And I was like, going to get all the knowledge and do all the things. Me too. Right. Like, I love that. The problem is when it's sort of like being afraid, like if you're afraid, you don't make expansive, creative and curious based decisions because you don't feel like the world is possible. You are afraid, but you're trying to soothe the fear. And in grief, there's a lot of that as well, which is how, how am I going to manage this? Well, right now you might need to manage it just to regulate your anger, but the progression, the hope and the progression is that what works for you in month three might not be as needed in month five. Not because grief is getting better. You know, the grief is the grief is the grief. The grief is kind of always the same size. It's that your ability to carry it begins to shift and change. Yes. And so what I would say when you said you're dissociated from it, I think there's more people in your camp than you would imagine. You know, people who are codependent, people who don't even know, you know, or have dissociated because of eating disorders or addiction, when you say to them, what would be helpful right now? They look at you like, my daughter has a little streak of this and I'm, it freaks me out. So like when we get in the car, I'll say, do you want to put some music on? She's 13 and she'll say, what do you want to listen to? Of course. 
And I say, nope, I'm not driving until you tell me what you want to listen to. And she gets really stressed out. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Even if we're late, I literally want you to go exactly as you described into your body and no, do you want to sing? Do you need some classical music? Do you want no noise? And once you know, you tell me I can wait, but it's allowing someone that skill set to say, you do have an answer. You do. Everyone does. But in order to do it, you're going to have to get all the guys on the bus <laughs> to raise their hand and give some answers and have a conference call about what you're. I love that. I love that. It's so true. And I, I'm going to keep that visual of the <clears throat> double barreled because yeah. it's true. If you think of your inner critic as a protector yes. versus the judge and jury, that's yes. always putting you down, which is, you know, I think how I held myself in my early life. And I was, you know, I was always hyper vigilant, right? I, I, I grew up in a home where there was like a lot of fighting. I was the oldest. I had to keep it together. And there's a part of me that, that, goes there very quickly right and uh, have you read elizabeth gilbert one of her books is big magic and there, that that spiel she talks about which is fear creativity and i are going on a yeah. on a road trip we know you're going to come because you always do but you can't drive yeah and i think that it has also been a big learning for me is that people think i'm so brave i can't tell you how many times people say to me wow especially again in writing this book <laughs> I don't feel brave. I feel scared most of the time. The yeah. difference now is I just don't allow that fear to either paralyze me or me to come in and be angry as a way to cut off that fear. I, I have developed, as you're saying, more of an ability to be with it and to work with it and to continue. And I guess through that, I have become more brave and more courageous, but it, it doesn't it doesn't feel that way. I don't feel like I'm, I'm ever going to arrive. <laughs> right? Well, you've learned to not believe the fear, right? So one of the things that, you know, whether yeah. I'm talking to my kids or I'm talking to myself, like fear is real, but it doesn't mean that we need to believe and act on it because most of our feelings will pass. You know, most of the feelings kind of buzz around like bugs or something. When it is a true fear, it's going to inhabit our five senses experience differently and need to be regulated. So if there's a bear in the room, I'm not going to be able to talk yeah. myself out of the fact that I need to be yeah. afraid, but you know, exactly what you just said is I am more afraid all the time right now. I just care less <laughs> than I am afraid. I have more <laughs> tolerance of it. I mean, yeah. I see my husband regularly, when I put up blog posts, I'm always like, oh man, I think like my ass is hanging out on the internet right now. And people are going to say bad things and stuff happens. People will say, oh, you didn't get this right in your podcast. Or, you know, I think you mean something else, or you should think about it from the, and all of that also hurts. It doesn't feel good, but the, but the concept of sort of like, man, I recovered from being in a trauma hospital, not being able to speak after my mom died. Like, I think I can recover from someone's critical email, you know, on my website. And so it's that it's the idea that bad things happen. And I have truly increased my capacity to manage them. Now, I don't know if something, my expectation is I could go down hard and go down hard again. 
I don't think I'm inoculating myself the way I used to. The way that I used to was like, I know all the things and I know all the treatments. And I really, all that got me was like the phone number that I needed to call to go to the place to get the treatment that I needed. We're so similar. The, the visual that I have is I was always trying to stay above it. Like all the messiness, just put it down, put it down. And now I just have more ability to stay in it, even if I don't like it. And a lot of times I don't just doing it shows me that I can, which then of course makes it less scary. I went back into this big HR operating role after being seven years at private equity and like six months later, COVID hit. So I just think I could never have led during this time had I not gone through the personal experiences that I'd gone through and all the healing and all the learning, because I feel like now we're in the land of, of, of gray. We don't know, right? We were kicked out of our offices. Now we're trying to get employees back in. I have so much more empathy and ability to just say, well, we're going to try it. We're going to pilot this. We're going to see and, and hope that I can relate to others in a way where they feel enough trust that we're doing our best, but not expect us to know everything. Yeah. It's that in of itself is a very, very vulnerable place. Like you yes. think about leadership 10 years ago or 20 years ago, when you had all the answers and here's the five point plan and here's where we're going. And that is just gone now. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that often happens with clients is they come in and they're like, you're the expert, you know, things. And I think when I was 25, I was like, I'm the expert and I know things That's right. And That's right. I now. I'm like, I'm not the expert. I don't know things. I, I just really am committed to being here with you while we figure this out together. My mom died. I took six months off. I went back to work for two months and then COVID hit. So, you know, I, I feel like COVID was sort of like the bus that showed up a few months later in terms of everybody else's chaos and grief. And I had already been sort of living in the territory of chaos and grief. I'd moved there beforehand. And what I really feel more than anything is that I can demonstrate sort of some confidence around the thing that I really believe, which is that even though it's incredibly hard and we don't have as much education as we should, that people can do this, that you can figure out how to navigate untenable loss, that it's better to do it with an element of creativity and curiosity if you can regulate yourself, but regulating yourself is a really hard process and you might need some support with that. One of my supervision group, these two extraordinary women who were really, really helpful in helping me know how to navigate my practice as I was taking time off. When I came back, I was like, what do I tell my clients? You know, what am I, what am I supposed to say? And one of them said, what do you need in order to feel safe in the room? And I was like, oh, that's the answer, isn't it? It's not about what they need. It's what, and I was like, oh, I got to tell everybody. Like I have to tell them that, you know, I did inpatient treatment. Now I have blogs and I had no internet presence before. I kept a certain privacy level because that's what we're taught to do as therapists. And I have no doubt that for some of my clients, that my shift has not been great. The thing is, it's the only way forward for me. I know for some of my clients, it was, it, was distressing to think of how difficult it it was. And that that might mean that they are more hesitant to say, I'm going to see my mother 
when they know that I, you know, had such difficulty with my mother. I, I just imagine and, and know because I can have some of those conversations with people that it maybe would have been better for them. And I have some friends who feel this way too. If I could have just sort of stuck to the path I was on, but I can't and I can't and I won't and I didn't. And it hasn't been awful. This side of things, I have a really authentic voice in the room that I like with my clients. I think it's interesting because from my perspective, and maybe because I've been on a little bit of this journey, the fact that you have actually experienced um, tremendous loss and you struggled, you came out to me, makes you, makes you actually more credible. And, and I try to remember that in my parenting, right? I'm parenting a daughter as well. And if you act like you've got it all together and there's no problem and there's no issues and 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 you're telling them oh it's okay if you're vulnerable it's okay to feel your feelings but you yourself are not and you're just this perfect you know looking person that you know that that doesn't usually work I completely agree with you I have seen people really struggle with the secondary loss of having to be authentic not being able to put a shiny veneer on stuff and really lose friendships or not be able to go back to communities who, you know, can't embrace that, really want you to go back to who you were before, or don't have room for who you are now. You may not feel this, but some people do when there's, when there is addiction or overdose, there's this whole pallor of judgment that can exist, particularly if you're the mother of a child who overdoses, what kind of a mother must you be? Yeah. Or suicide. There's some elements where you know, the, the death is such that people want to turn their heads and what that feels like to the person is you are turning your head to me, not the death and experience. And so I felt that after my husband, 100%, I thought, am I, are they judging me? And what really killed me was, are they judging my daughter? Right. And and I I think the only positive thing that's happened with respect to this over the last 10, 12 years is that we are talking a little more openly about addiction and suicide and overdoses. But it is true that I had, and I write this in the book, moments where I thought it would have been so much easier if he died of, it's terrible to say, but in a car accident or of cancer, something that people understand and accept a little bit better because there is so much heaviness and judgment with with drugs and with an overdose uh, so yeah that is very much part of it yeah and I think the brutalness of that is that you I, I'm gonna suppose this happened but there are people who know how to step close to that terrible vulnerability mm-hmm. that you're in so you can feel that you can feel yourself being embraced by the humanity of people who get it and speak the native language of this loss and then also you feel the judgmental distancing. And so it's this incredibly painful juxtaposition where you're like, I know what it could be like and should be like. And this other piece that's happening, which is doubling down, by the way, on my pain, I need to get it out of my life or I need to get it away from me because it, it doesn't need to be that way. And so again, when I get on my soapbox of, wanting to teach a college class or hoping that this podcast is going to get in the ears of particularly young people. Part of what I want to say to them is if you notice that you are judging someone who has gone through a profound loss, I would ask you to take yourself 
to a therapist before you open mm. your mouth or go close to that person in any way. If you are standing in judgment, do not go close. Take yourself out of the game and figure out why you are using that distancing tool because that's about you and not mm. about them. Because if you step close, you will hurt them and they just they do not deserve to be hurt. And that is the report. So powerful. People, right? Is so true. I, honest to God, could talk to you all day. This is, I'm so, <laughs> you are like such a gift to me. I'm so glad that you reached out and I really hope we stay in conversation with each other. I do want you to tell people just a little bit about the book and how to stay in touch with your work and where to find sure. you and all, and all of that. So take a couple minutes and, and let people. Okay. I feel the same way. I feel these conversations are so nourishing, so healing. So thank you. So my book, Strong Like Water, you know, when I first started telling people about it, one person said, well, is it a misery memoir? And I was like, no, it's not a misery memoir. It's actually a very hopeful story of one woman's um, experience in trying to make her way through three big losses and how those losses really ended up being the catalyst for so much deepening and awakening and integration. The reason I actually published it is because as I was making these insights along the way, and I would share some of them with my friends, almost every time they would say something like, oh yeah, I do that too, or would help them learn something about themselves. And I thought as a coach, what better is there in this life if my story can help uh, orient you on where you are on your journey, on your map? Because the hardest thing when you're grieving and when you're lost is you don't know where you are. You don't know when it's going away, when it's coming back. Is this a big wave? Is this a small wave? There's just so much you don't know. What I realized was all of us are going to experience loss in some way. It's going to look different for each of us. And I love the statement, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And maybe the way that I tell my story and the circumstances around my loss and how I helped myself will be the opening for somebody who was similar, who's similarly wired as, as I am. And if it, it, it provides a light on that path that helps to ease suffering either in the moment or helps them find a new way for themselves. Amazing. What else is there? Yeah. Right. That's, and that's why I, I published the book and I'm excited about it. And I'm really excited that there's as much interest in business people having me come and speak about it. I was at Bain consulting the other day where we had all these women we talked about the stories we tell ourselves and how they're not true, how they're incomplete. And just having the courage to even have those conversations in business, uh, I think it, we're all on this, on this path. So that's the book. It's been called part memoir, part leadership guide, part psychological probe. It's all of those things. It doesn't fall into one clean genre, but it's, it's, a, it's a really quick read. And I hope it'll provide inspiration and healing for people that well, I just got it. it just came and I am for two seconds bookless. So I'm picking it up and I'm going to sit and read it at the pool today. Oh, you'll have to tell me what you think. Well, so yeah, I will absolutely circle back, but I, I went to a memoir writing workshop run by Danny Shapiro, who you may oh, know yeah. um, I up do. At, 
Epic Kripala, which is this amazing yoga center here on the East Coast. And I walked into that room only, I'd only been writing like six months or something. And I was really feeling vulnerable, you know, how vulnerable while I was choosing it, but I was really just feeling awkward in the room. And we broke out into these small groups and every person there who was writing a memoir was writing a lost story. Every story that mm. was there was a story of transformation, grief, and loss. I mean, that's just, if you don't have something that you had to overcome, then why write a book about it? And what I was so struck by was the generosity of every single person because yes. there, there is no competition in telling your own story. No one else can tell your story. And if every single one of us that have been through profound loss wrote a book about it, we would still need all of the stories yet to come, partly because we're that far behind. And also that's the mentorship guiding and the sort of sitting with and bearing witness that we need to offer each other. I mean, it's it's so hard and that large. So I'm really excited to read your book because it does feel like a blend of all the things that I'm interested in. I really hope that we cross paths again. I did read Strong Like Water. You guys should get it. You're going to love it. It is this really interesting blend. I can't say I've I've read another book like it of personal story, sort of inspirational stuff about work in the business world and psychology. I mean, it's a really smart book. It's very fast read. I think I read it in one full day. And I handed it to a colleague because I thought a lot about it afterwards. So I think you're going to like it. Go ahead and get it. Come back next week. The season's wrapping up, but I've got a few more people. And then I'm going to close the season with actually a podcast with my kids. If you haven't given me a review on Apple Podcasts, go over, do the stars, but also do the comments. It really helps folks. It helps people find us. I'm so appreciative when you do that. If you have suggestions for people you want me to try to interview, I have a team of people that are good at reaching out. So let me know. Let me know who you know out there in the grief world so that I can get in touch. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.